NATO ups the ante in Eastern Europe with message to Moscow. Russia has also been willing to not only invest in their uh, uh, armed forces, but also to use their armed forces against neighbours. Claims that the push for Mosul could be over in days. And looking at 100 years of military weather forecasting. Hello there, welcome to the programme. I'm Tim Cooper and with me in the SITREP studio, as ever, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. NATO has this week seemingly been sending a strong signal to Russia over its behaviour toward the former Soviet countries in the Baltic area and Eastern Europe. Britain is to send fighter jets to Romania. The United States promised troops, tanks and artillery to Poland and we've learnt today that Britain will be part of that in the alliance's biggest military build-up on Russia's borders since the Cold War. Well, with me to discuss this in more detail is Christopher Lee and on the line the Professor in War Studies at the University of Warwick, Tony King. Tony, thank you very much indeed for joining us. What is NATO doing here? Well, uh, the, the response to NATO really is, is, is in relation to, to Ukraine and, a, and an increasing sense of uh, Russia's obvious uh, emerging uh, or resurgence as an aggressive power. And it's particularly, I think, um, a response to the fears, and I think they are justified fears, of the Baltic uh, states in particular, and of course, uh, Poland as well. Uh, and it's an attempt, I think, you know, there's been some some suggestion about provocation and the dangers there, but I, I think it is a sensible series of steps to secure uh, and uh, and increase the confidence of state, member states, you know, which are formally members of NATO and therefore have to be um, defended under Article Five. Um, so, so I think it is a, a rational response to to a changing changing environment. I mean, the Article 5 thing there is key with NATO, always has been. But are you really saying to me that a country like Estonia, if Russia decided to walk in, and literally it probably could, that NATO's going to do anything? They're not, are they? Oh, well, I, 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 the question there is, would NATO do anything? I'm absolutely confident the Americans would do something. Uh, and, and this leads to an issue of, of the changing structure and balance of powers within NATO. Um, but I think that a, a sort of grab for land in that way is is not precisely what NATO or the West generally is thinking about. I mean, I think, I think a more... Uh, you know, more muddy and problematic model is is the fear really that that Putin would do as he's done in various places, including Ukraine, is to um, stoke up and use um, uh, subnational ethnic uh, affiliations to confuse the political situation. At that point, providing him with some pretext for further political slash uh, military or security action. And I think. Um, I, I, I think a, a genuine sort of Cold War invasion is a less likely scenario, um, and I think that NATO is more towards a, 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 an attempt to stabilise and assure and affirm uh, the um, credibility of the alliance with those Baltic states and, crucially, their populations, so that such a destabilising environment could not occur. Christopher Lee. Do you know, two and a half weeks ago, Tony, I, was, I went... in in NATO, in Brussels, and saying, what happens, for example, if, the, if, if Russia in some way, not solely physically with you know, some six-shock army or whatever, leans on the Liths, and goes Lithuania, Estonia, etc., what happens here in, in Brussels? And they said, well, you know, one of the problems is actually getting the NATO nations together, actually physically getting, get, getting mm. together to take a decision, go through the formal decision-making process. The chances are that it would not be a unanimous 
um, decision anyway, because look at the state of other countries. I then went that weekend uh, uh, to a small thing in Washington. They were saying to me, we would not do anything, especially at the moment. We would not make anything very difficult for Putin. And their opinion was this, that NATO, because of its inaction, even if it would like to do something, because of its inactivity, would therefore lose so much credibility. And then somebody threw in the idea of Euro army, etc. That confused the whole issue. I mean, in, in response to that, I mean, I, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a series of fascinating points. And I, and I you know, I think they're very illuminating. I agree with them. Um, I know I mean, except they're theoretical as well. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I, you know, I, th- I think, they're, you know, the, the situation is complex and they are absolutely valid points. I mean, I'm, I might add to them in this way to say, look, one of the one of the points here is, yes, absolutely. Both the political cumbersomeness of NATO is a problem. And actually, in terms of the European pillar, pillar it's unbelievable military weakness is now a problem. Uh, but but one strategy which I think I read into the, the forward positioning of the battalions, a, a few light infantry battalions in those countries makes no difference militarily. However, it does present Putin with a potential political problem, namely that if it does, if there is fighting, and, and as I say, I think that's a, that's a more unlikely scenario, um, immediately it ramps up the political stakes of any conflict, that there are NATO Western Alliance troops from other nations, um, including North American nations, Canada, etc., uh, in that environment. Uh, it, it, it ramps up the political stakes. So even if militarily, um, the NATO forces in those forward deployed areas are not actually significant forces, and I don't think light infantry forces are. Um, politically, they could have a useful operational uh, purpose, and, and that uh, that's how I read some of this strategy. Well, we've seen, haven't we, an example of military force, albeit a very small one, not effective one, being used as a great political tool this week with the Russians and their flotilla sailing down the channel. You'd think in some British media that it was uh, the Armada coming back at us. But that's an example, Christopher Antonio, of of using small amounts of force to project a big political message. I think, you know, those those vessels, I'm look at the old uh, Kuznetsov, the Admiral Kuznetsov, I, I can't remember how old it is, but it's it's, it's never been a good example. It's, it's the equivalent to Charles de Gaulle, isn't it, the French... Uh, bit bit uh, knackered, but big. Well, I tell you, yeah, but where is it at the moment? I mean, it's been going, it, it, it went down, on the 3rd of September, there was an agreement, or they thought they had an agreement with the Spanish to put into Ceuta if necessary. Not to do so, but if necessary. Um, that's been turned down after the question was asked in NATO, might these vessels be used? used in the operation in Syria. There was no particular answer coming from that, and therefore Spain had to back down as this as the governing body of Ceuta. They've now gone uh, across the North African coast. They can't put in, and for the same reasons, anywhere in the southern European uh, ports, because they're all NATO ports, uh, and therefore they're heading, heading for eastern uh, the Eastern Mediterranean to stand off uh, and provide, if necessary, uh, a platform, just as the United Kingdom did in '82 in the Falklands, an air platform uh, for the operation in Syria. The best bet it might be is to get a refueling job off off Hammamet, which is about where they will be uh, this evening, Thursday evening. Tony, just finally from you, I'm going to throw this one out to you in 30 seconds. Where's this whole thing with Russia going to go? Difficult question, I know. 
Um, well, I don't think they'll. I don't personally think there'll be some some sort of cataclysmic invasion of of, of the um, Baltic republics. Um, what I think, though, is that is likely is an increasing uh, increasing tension. And I think what's 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 very significant for me is the entanglement of other problems. And and the the Soviet uh, aircraft carrier is is a point in, in, in you know case in point. Mm. Um, but I think the problem for NATO is that they're not just facing one threat from uh, Russia as they were in the Cold War. There's a multiplicity of regional global problems entangled into one problem. And the question, I think, for NATO is, do they have sufficient political will and coherence and the military forces to actually generate a coherent strategy, even for the Balkans? Um, it's an open question. Tony King from the University of Warwick, thank you very much indeed for joining us on SITREP. Now, as we've been discussing, these NATO deployments come off the back of Russian aggression in the past two years right across Europe. Moscow has been continually blamed for fueling the fighting. Tony was discussing that with us in the eastern Ukraine. And thousands of confidential emails between President Putin's advisers have been leaked this week, apparently exposing the Kremlin's efforts to try and break up neighbouring states. Well, Dr Andrew Foxall is director of the Russia Studies Centre at the Henry Jackson Society. He's on the line now. Andrew, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Now, one NATO flexes its muscles in the region. Is Russia still in the background, unknown to us because we've lost interest, flexing its muscles, playing its game in eastern Ukraine? Uh, good afternoon. It's, it's a pleasure to, to, to speak with you and, and, and to join you. Um, I suppose the short answer to your question is, you know, is, is, is yes, um, as you, as you uh, rightly suggest. You know, the, the, the leak of the confidential emails, the hacking of the confidential emails um, that belong to the account of a, a gentleman, Mr. Vladislav Sokov, who's President Putin's personal advisor, show a number of things, not least the extent to which the Kremlin was basically directly involved with the supposedly dependent rebels in eastern Ukraine. The Kremlin was asked, for example, to approve ministerial appointments to those theoretically independent entities of Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics. The Kremlin was asked to approve laws. It was even, you know, scarcely believable that they would go to this extreme, but even asked to approve press statements and press releases uh, released by the rebels before they were uh, before they were shared with with, with, with the media, um, you know, so there is an interesting dynamic here, a, 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 you know, a, a sort of another aspect of Russia's uh, foreign policy. With your previous guest, you were discussing Russia's overt um, uh, sort of action uh, in um, in Eastern Europe, but this also reveals the, the very covert nature of, of of some of Russia's actions, I suppose. More broadly, in eastern Ukraine, low-level fighting continues to this day. Soldiers are dying on a daily or, or near-daily basis. Um, you know, thus far, according to the United Nations, almost 10,000 soldiers and civilians have been killed on both sides. And for means of comparison, um, the Ukrainian army's rate of mortality of, of more than two soldiers per day thus far in the, for the duration of the war um, is, is actually higher than, than the U.S. Army's mortality rate during the, 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 the most recent Iraq war. So there is, as I say, a continuation of, of warfare in Ukraine. But as, you, as your question alludes to, you know, in, this has, in a sense, fallen off the front pages of, of the Western media.
One thing that springs to mind when we're talking about all of this is actually going back to 1941, that sort of thing, Hitler expanding all over Europe. It seems Russia are doing the same, much smaller way, of course, completely different time frame. But are they at the same danger of overstretching themselves by becoming involved in multiple theatres, doing this sort of background cyber-type influence stuff and also the more overt? There is undoubtedly danger uh, in that. Of course, it, the, the, the different activities depend on different aspects and, and, and different parts of, of, of Russia's military, and certainly with the cyber security, you know, which you which you uh, which you allude to, and I suppose which is best exemplified not only by the the hack of the Democratic National Committee's uh, emails, the emails linked with Hillary Clinton as part of the U.S. presidential election, but perhaps most visibly with the the cyber attacks in Estonia in in 2008, linking back to that conversation on on the Baltics, um, you know there, there 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 is, as with all aspects of Russia's military, or most at least, as with most aspects of Russia's military, there is a blurring between state and non-state actors. Um, most of the email hacks and the cyber attacks are undertaken by entities that we in the West would not understand as being part of of Russia's official military structures, but nevertheless. The, the, what the actions that they undertake clearly um, work in work in Russia's interest to a to to a, to a great uh, degree. I suppose what we also need to bear in mind as well is that is that President Putin sees the states that border um, the the states that border the former territory of the of of the Soviet Union effectively as one large battlefield as one large theatre. And that theatre runs from the Baltics and the North, of course, through Central and e through Southeastern Europe, through the Caucasus to the Middle East and Central Asia. And what President Putin does is he sort of wages that by escalating or de-escalating conflict and war in one area, he will be able to better the deal that he is able to strike in another. So there is a danger of imperial overstretch or, or just, overstretch. Um, can, I, can I, Andrew? Can, you, can I just uh, make a point here? We're looking at this, aren't we? to my mind, in a very sort of, if you like, a parochial, a British sort of way. Uh, I do some work with the Organisation, Organisation of Security and Cooperation in uh, Europe, which sort of came out of those, that 70s and 80s uh, thing for security and cooperation generally, Helsinki, etc. If I read, as I do, uh, English uh, translations of, the, of newspapers, for example, in the Baltic, um, uh, Romanian, Hungarian, Czech, to a less extent, Slovak newspapers, and and I suppose um, more the Baltic or whatever, uh, that part of it. I do see the reports from the OSCE on the daily uh, goings-on in the Ukraine, which you never see in the United Kingdom, uh, never at all, and that's because we're not neighbours with what's going on in the Ukraine. I think you've probably hit on the point there. Dr Andrew Foxall from the Henry Jackson Society, thanks very much indeed for joining us here on SITREP today. Still to come, Ian Hislop tells us about his play based on a newspaper written by soldiers at the Somme. And 100 years after that battle, how weather forecastings played a key role on the front line for a century. At the start of World War I, the Met Office offered its services to the army, uh, but they were informed that the army doesn't go to war with umbrellas. They do, you know, I've seen them.
They always have an umbrella. Anyway, let's move on to another serious topic, and that is Iraq, of course. We've been seeing in the news the plans, the push now to retake Mosul. There were also some warnings this week that some IS fighters escaping the fighting may return to Europe and pose a threat to security forces nearer to home. And that could also hold true for other countries in the region. This week there have been differing predictions on the timeline for when Mosul could be retaken. Last night the consequences of what might happen when IS had driven out were debated at Chatham House. Dr Lena Katib is its head of the Middle East programme, joins us now. Welcome to the programme, Lena. What were some of the key issues raised? Uh, the key issues raised when it comes to uh, the battle for Mosul have to do uh, with the current political crisis in Iraq that will continue to play out uh, even if ISIS is eradicated militarily. So while it seems that military preparedness is at an, what it seems to be an adequate level, uh, Iraq seems to not be as politically prepared as it should be. I mean, watching the, the pictures on television, we've seen various BBC reporters embedded with some of these Iraqi special forces. Um, to me, from a Western perspective, they look as terrifying as the rebels, and, and that's a, a poor thing to say. I mean, we're all very concerned about what happens after IS. What yes, will happen? absolutely. So when I was talking about political preparedness, I uh, am mainly talking about, uh, first of all, relations between different communities in Iraq, between the Sunnis and the Shia, but also relations within these communities, uh, intra-Sunni, intra-Sunni uh, Shia relations. Uh, not everybody in the Shia community likes the presence of these paramilitary forces that are Shia that are taking part in the battle to liberate Mosul. At the same time, others in the Shia community see in these paramilitary groups a way to start uh, uh, a wave of new political voices in Iraq in the future. At the same time, the Sunnis seem apprehensive about the presence of these militias on the ground in the battle to liberate them and fear that they might um, re be uh, replacing uh, IS with something uh, that will also discriminate against them. So the, the, the uh, aspect of community cohesion and, and political uh, unity is, is far from missing and that's why the post-IS period uh, does not seem to um, uh, give us much hope when it comes to political stability in the country. I mean, that's a really interesting assessment. I mean, all of these problems, Shia and Sunni, that we've heard of historically are still there. Of course they are. But from a Western point of view, we're very concerned, rightly or wrongly, about IS and its threat to us. Is there a danger that IS fighters currently in the area they occupy, including Mosul, will make their way back to the UK, other European countries, other parts of uh, the Middle East, and maintain their campaign of terror there? Uh, you see, the problem uh, is that uh, the domestic context in Iraq is very much connected to the international uh, dimension. So if we have the kind of political crisis that I talked about continue, this means that the grievances that drove people to ally themselves with IS in the first place, and here I'm talking particularly about the Sunni community, these kinds of grievances will uh, continue even if IS as a group is eradicated in Iraq. Um, and these uh, people will seek to do something in order to kind of uh, compensate for this loss. So IS is likely to transform into a global insurgency similar to Al-Qaeda, which means that it will seek to compensate for its own losses in Iraq through activities outside. And because of the presence of uh, people with grievances, it will unfortunately uh, have the people likely to carry out such attacks outside. Mm. Um, Dr. Um, Khatib, answer me this one. Once 
IS, on the assumption it is, is shifted out of Mosul, where does IS go as a command system, as an inspiration, as an organization? What place does it go to? Um, I think it will uh, stay where it is right now, which is in the desert between Iraq and Syria. We have to remember that Mosul is important to IS. However, the central command for IS is not in the city of Mosul or in the city of Raqqa in Syria, for that matter. Um, the commanders remain based in the desert on the ground between Iraq and Syria, and that's where they will go if Mosul is lost. And from there, they will seek to conduct new kinds of operations in order to show their supporters and sympathizers around the world that they still possess power. And that means that um, the only way to really um, weaken IS, even just militarily, has to include Syria and not just Iraq. A logical, but ultimately depressing assessment there. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Lena Khatib from Chatham House. Thanks for joining us on SITREP. Now, from trying to predict the future in some senses there, time for us to take a look back here on SITREP. This week marks 100 years since the first weather forecast was provided for the British Armed Forces by the Meteorological Office. From the Battle of the Somme through a crucial role in the D-Day landings right through to current operations, the Met Office has provided the latest forecasting information for military commanders. Archivist at the Met Office, Catherine Ross, joins us now on SITREP. Now, Catherine, just remind us about the historical link and what happened 100 years ago. Uh, well, uh, on 24th of October 1916 was the first what we term operational forecast for the military, and that was the first general forecast that we have that shows wind direction and wind speed, temperature, visibility, conditions in the upper atmosphere, uh, all the sorts of things that would be needed in order to sort of start planning military operations. Now, this might strike some people as strange because it was way back in the 1880s, wasn't it, that newspapers started printing a weather forecast, so one would have assumed that the military would have latched on to that. Why was there a sort of reticence for the military to have a forecast? I don't know exactly why there was a reticence as such. Um, the Met Office themselves recognised the, the relevance of meteorology and warfare right back at the start of World War One, and felt that they could be helpful in providing forecasts um, and that they uh, approached the, the, the army, the military forces and offered their services um, but they were turned down with the phrase, the army doesn't go to war with umbrellas. <laughs> Um, but that position did change um, by, by sort of summer of 1915 uh, with the use of gas in the field, the Royal Flying Corps requiring uh, information um, and the Royal Artillery developing uh, accurate high-angle fire. Uh, the Met Office did start to have observers in the field um, and they started providing forecasting and um, information to those sort of speci specialist elements of, of the armed, armed forces. That's very interesting, isn't it? So the technology of weather forecasting was hastened onto the battlefield because of the changes on the battlefield itself. Christopher Lee? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, I always reckon they didn't go... I mean, the, the British Army didn't go to, to war with umbrellas. They went in wellies. Um, and they also had this... still had a, a, a horse mentality and took their horses, you know, and, and right up until the 1980s, they still sort of shoved hay down one end and swept up to the other. It was a, <laughs> you know, that, was, that was this sort of complex... And it was the introduction of, of, of all the new technology. Before that... They could go to war as they did in, in the 19th century. But I'm quite interested, I mean, for example, uh, historically, the Battle of Hastings, which have, you know, is being celebrated at the moment. 1066. Remember, 1066 at the moment. Um, if you look um, at what the weather forecasts and the weather conditions were uh, in the Channel in 1066, in October 1066, um, 
a large part of William of Normandy's force was pinned on the North French coast. If the weather had not changed, and considering what vessels they've got, mm. they, they've no keels, they've got flat-bottomed uh, vessels, need them to get big lo lots of troops, horses especially, across. If the weather had not changed and become a southerly, which therefore they could have been driven onto the, the beaches of Pevensey, they probably, you wouldn't have the 1066, you wouldn't have the, the invasion. And don't forget the Armada. The Armada wasn't a beat-up by the British Navy, the Royal Navy. It was, in fact, the weather that did for the Spanish, and they found it off the north coast of Scotland. And it was, of course, the gap in the weather that helped us on the 6th of June 1944 for Operation Overlord. Catherine, just finally, the, the Medal of still plays a vital role with the military, doesn't it? Uh, yes, we still have uh, members of our mobile Met unit known as the MMU, uh, and they serve uh, throughout the world. Wherever we have British military forces, uh, then we will have MMU members. Catherine Ross from the Met Office, thank you very much indeed for joining us. And of course the weather forecast continues to go out on BFBS every single day, whether you want it or not. Let's move on. And so, <laughs> 100 years since the Met Office first worked with the British Armed Forces at the Battle of the Somme. And a century later, one of the most extraordinary stories from the First World War frontline is being told on stage. This weekend, the month-long run of the adaptation of The Wipers Times comes to an end at the Watermill in Newbury. It's based on the award-winning BBC film by Ian Hislop and Nick Newman about the satirical newspaper created at the Somme. Two officers discovered a printing press, created a paper designed to lift the spirits of the men on the front line. Now, very pleased to say that Ian Hislop joins us on the programme. I Ian, thanks very much indeed for talking to us today. This story's fascinated you for years, hasn't it? It must be great to see it on stage. Yes, I mean, I, I came across it when I was making a documentary about the First World War, I mean, a good 15 years ago, um, and it took a long time to persuade anyone um, to actually put it on. A lot of people said, oh, no one's interested in the First World War. <laughs> and then there was War Horse and Bird Song, and, they, uh, and now the anniversary, and they decided they were actually interested in the First World War. So anyway, it was on as a film, and it's now on as a play, and it's about to head off on tour to Sheffield and Salisbury and Ipswich. It's one of those things, isn't it, about history that, that keeps one interested in it. It's the fact that you can always find out more. Who'd have thought printing presses and satirical newspapers yeah. figured in the Somme story? Um, it... it, it um, when I came across this story, I thought this is too good to be true um, and also too good to have been forgotten, <laughs> which it had been completely. The idea that, you know, in 1916, two officers who were looking for salvage found a, a, a printer and the coincidence that their sergeant had been a printer in Fleet Street um, as a civilian and said, I can make this work. And the two of them in 1916, when, you know, there, there were other things to do, uh, said, we will set up a satirical newspaper, which they then did. And wherever they went, I mean, they, they produced 23 issues of this, I mean, completely brilliant, um, humorous publication. Now, you, of course, know all about satirical newspapers and the problems of producing them in peacetime, let alone at wartime. You, you, your hat must be taken off to these people. Yes. I mean, they are extraordinary. I mean, uh, Fred Roberts, um, who was the editor said you really should try um, correcting page proofs in a trench which he did before the Battle of the Somme um, um, after apologising that the issue they were about to produce was a bit thin due to other problems um, and then not only did he produce this thing then um, during the Battle of the Somme he, he you know, led his men over the top and he won the MC for gallantry um, which again um, makes him a very very different sort of editor to those of us who are skulking about in Soho <laughs> Talking to people that skulk in Soho, Christopher Lee's with me, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a question. Yeah, I, 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 just, I was just thinking, you know, war's, uh, war's not a very funny business, and perhaps it should be. It's a wonderful quote, isn't it? Um, yes, and um, 
I found um, that there... Someone described the wife of the Times as determined flippancy. Mm. I mean, they weren't idiots, they weren't twits. Um, their humour was a deliberate response um, to the horror of what they were experiencing. And they weren't, you know, they weren't in a... Um, supply trench miles away. These were frontline soldiers. Can I um, can I try you on something? Uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful. I mean, I saw the film. Yeah. Fantastic. There is that. Well, thank you. Mu- well, it, it was actually. And thank them really because we stole all their jokes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the way of the world. Listen, and there's this there's this marvelous scene at the end where Fred Roberts comes back from the war, wants to be a journalist, and they said, "Well, you can help do the crossword." Yeah. And he gets up and sort of says. You know, yeah. Uh, but he goes off to become a prospector in Canada, and it's a very <laughs> um, amazingly sad, sad sort of ending. But somehow, it's it's it's, it's that's a sort of an epitaph of the whole damn war, isn't it? Yes, and I think that's why it's so appealing. Both he and um, Jack Pearson, his co-editor, who went and worked on railways in Argentina, neither of them were ever published ever again. And my friend Nick Newman, who I co-wrote the play with, said, you know, they should have been editing Punch in the 20s and 30s. I mean, there weren't any jokes in Punch for about three decades. Um, <laughs> and th- th- these men were given nothing. And I think we do forget that, you know, they, they put this joke in their 1918 um, edition. They said, you know, we've been an army of occupation. Now we're an army of no occupation. They knew what was coming, that there was nothing for men like them to do. Ian Hislop, thanks ever so much for joining us on SITREP today. It sounds like a fascinating show. I should, of course, say that the Wipers Times is, is called that because of the difficulty in pronunciation of the Belgian town of Ypres, which I still struggle with today. Anyway, this has been SITREP with your host, Tim Cooper. I shall be back again, I think, next week. They're nodding in the gallery at me. That's a good thing. In the meantime, you can look out for our podcast and search BFBS SITREP. From me, Tim Cooper, and Christopher Lee and the team, thanks for listening. Until next time, bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. NATO announced.